Joel's going to come up, and he's just going to share uh, a word that God put on his heart. And I just ask that we would open up our ears and say, Lord, you know, sometimes what God wants to do isn't even what comes out of the message. But I believe that there is something, and we say it all the time, it's not an accident that you're here today. And um, I believe there's a reason. And so let's continue to open up our hearts and say, Lord, what do you want to do in and through me today? Joel. Well, hey, good morning, church. How's everybody doing in the house today? Man, such a wonderful time in the presence of the Lord this morning. And um, first, I, uh, I wanna kind of briefly introduce myself. My name is uh, Joel Eklund. I'm the uh, executive pastor at House of the Lord Church over in Old Town, Idaho. So this is a bit of a trek for me. Um, we, we, uh, we actually were in a hotel downtown and Pete asked me like, how was the hotel? And I was like, bro, I'm from a town that doesn't have a hotel. <laughs> so it was pretty good. <laughs> Uh, my, my wife, Lindsay, is over here, uh, and she's, uh, we're, we're both so grateful and honored to be here this morning. I'm not going to take up too much of my time, because I really feel like I have a, a word for the house this morning, but I just really want to thank uh, Pastor uh, Pete and Tamar uh, for inviting us in. Man, we, we so appreciate you guys, and so thankful for you know, our, our, our friendship, even as young and new as it is. And uh, I'm also so grateful for Pastor Bob and Sue McGregor, who uh, have been here of mine for, for years and years, and uh, it's just an honor to be here. Um, it, just kind of being able to, uh, to be part of the legacy that, uh, that this house really has built. And so I just want to thank all of you guys for having us in, and I'm just excited to be here. How many of you are ready for the word of the Lord this morning? Hey, how many of you have ever gone into a different church? Right, like maybe, maybe this is like your first time here at, at City Harvest or, uh, you know, there was a time in my life when I was kind of between churches and, and, and it's interesting, it's interesting how, how, you can, how you can go from one church to another and like, I don't know if you're, if, if you're like me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very theologically based person. Like I'm, I grew up a wild charismatic it's what made me love theology because I realized that a lot of my wild charismaticness was not really theologically sound. <laughs> Swinging from the chandeliers turns out it's not in the Bible. Maybe it's first hesitations, I don't know. Anyway, um, but before I, before I ever go into a church, I, I, like to, I like to go to their beliefs page to see what they, you know, what they actually believe about Jesus. And, and it was amazing how many times I would go to a church, I'd go to their website, and I would see that they believed all the same things as me. And then I would go into a church and I would find that their church was nothing like the church that I'd ever experienced. Why is that? Why is it that we can believe generally mostly all the same things and yet every time you walk into a church, it's like everything's different? It's because beliefs are not necessarily values. Let me say it again, beliefs are not necessarily values but it's the values that you hold to be true that determine what you receive from the Lord. See, I could say that I value the presence of God, but if I don't develop a lifestyle of worship, do I really, do I really value the presence of God? I could say 
that I value the movement of the Holy Spirit, but if I never make room to practice those things, do I actually value that? In the same way, I could say that I value saving money, but if my savings account reads 0.00, do I actually value that? See, your beliefs are the things that you believe. Your values are the things that you practice. I'm gonna take you this morning and we're gonna talk about the story of two different men. One of them, actually both of them are gonna be probably kind of obscure, so I'm gonna take you through it a little bit this morning. It's the story of two different men. The first is a man named Obed-Edom and the second is a man named Abinadab. Obed-Edom and Abinadab. If, you're, uh, if, you're, if you've got your Bible this morning, I'd have you turn, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you to two different passages of scripture. The first one is 2 Samuel chapter six. Verses eight through 11. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. If you don't have that, no big deal. Just follow along with me. And it starts like this. David feared the Lord that day. Let me give you a little context before I continue reading on. David feared the Lord that day. If you read previously to this scripture, the Ark of the Covenant, which if you're not sure what that is, it was in this in the... Uh, in the tabernacle period, the Ark of the Covenant was one of the central pieces of worship in Israel. It generally served, and I'm gonna say generally because like, you know, we could probably get, you know, Brother Bill Scheidler up here and he could give you all the reasons that the Ark, you know, all the things that it did. But I'm gonna give you two basic reasons that the Ark existed. The first one was this. It was to carry the covenant promises of God. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, what you would find is you'd find the rod of Aaron that proved that his, that his, uh, his high priesthood was the, was the legitimate one. It would also have a, a jar of manna to remind the people of Israel how God sustained them in the wilderness. And it also had the stone that God wrote the Ten Commandments on. In addition to that, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were two angels, two cherubim, that their wings extended to create what we call the mercy seat. And it was there that the presence of God resided upon the earth. I need you to hear that. It was there, physically, not metaphysically, physically, that the presence of God resided upon the earth. Let me say it a different way. Where the, where the ark was, God was. Where the ark was, God was. The children of Israel, during a time of rebellion, effectively lost the ark of the covenant because they went out to battle believing that God was going to, was going to uh, fight on their behalf despite all of their rebellion. And for about a year, the Ark of the Covenant was bouncing around as a spoil of war to their enemies. And then the Ark of the Covenant, because it was in the hands of the enemy and ultimately what ended up happening was that because these people treated the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, as though it was their possession, they began to get sick. And so they sent it back to Israel thinking to themselves, we gotta get this thing out of here. We can't hold on to this. This isn't a, this isn't a spoil of war. This is a real problem. In fact, one of the first stories, this isn't on my notes, but here you go. One of the first stories of the Ark of the Covenant when it, comes to, when it comes to the Philistines is that they tried to put it as a trophy to their own god, Dagon. And so they brought it and they put it into his temple in front of his altar as though they were saying, this god has been conquered by Dagon. And then the next day when they came in, the statue of Dagon had fallen over in front of it. 
What's hilarious is what they did next. They picked it back up. Can you imagine walking into your God's temple where you've just put another God, basically, and it's bowing to your God and to the other God, and you're like, you know what we should do? Pick this guy back up. He needs round two. And so the next morning when they come back, they find that not only has Dagon Dagon fallen down, but he's actually broken into pieces so they couldn't put him back together again like Humpty Dumpty. Listen, this is a word to the wise this morning. This isn't part of my notes, but I want you to hear this. Stop worshiping things that you have to keep picking back up. Stop worshiping things that if you didn't empower them, they would not exist. So then, they send the ark to a man named Abinadab, who actually, turns out, was a Levite. And it stays at his house, I want you to hear this, for 20 years. 20 years. And then David, when he finally established his his kingdom, he said, we should really bring the presence of God back to the tabernacle. We need to bring it back to the city of David. And so he does this, but he does it trying to use the same means that the Philistines did. And so at a particular point, this ox cart that they put it in tipped, and a man named Uzzah, who was the son of Abinadab, reached out his hand irreverently to try to stabilize the ark, and the Lord killed him. And this is David's response. David feared the Lord that day. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe the better day to fear the Lord would have been the day before that. But hey, here we go. He feared the Lord that day at least. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was, listen to this. It wasn't that he was, he, he wasn't repentant. He didn't think to himself, maybe we should have done this differently. He says, so he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained in the house Three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. Now, the second passage of Scripture is this. This is the second time that we hear about Obed-Edom. And it's when he's actually referred to as a gatekeeper and a Levite in the house of the Lord. It says it this way. Obed-Edom also had sons. Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehozabad the second, Joah the third, Sakar the fourth, Nethanel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, and Pulathi the eighth. Can you imagine being named Pulathi? You know, that's, for those in the room that are having children, that's a middle name. Okay, you name your kid John first and then Pulathi second. You don't start with Pulathi. Anyway, sorry. For anybody in the room named Pulathi, I apologize. Your name's awesome. <laughs> So Obed-Edom is mentioned in Scripture twice. The first, of course, is in 2 Samuel where he's referred to as a Gittite, which simply means of Gath. The second is in 1 Chronicles where he's named as a Levite. So which is it? Is he a Gittite or is he a Levite? What if I told you it's both? What if I told you he's a Levite living in the wrong place? you ever felt like you're the right person, but you're in the wrong place? You ever felt like maybe the lifestyle you're living isn't sinful, but there's something missing? Like you could look at your life and you could say to yourself, 
you know, by my behavior, I don't feel like there's something wrong with me. But for whatever reason, my feet are not set. I don't know what I'm doing here. Imagine then for a moment that you're a Levite. Now, if you don't know what the Levites were, they were the, they were the priestly class. They were the priestly tribe of Israel. It, they were the only ones who had the right to minister to the presence of God. In fact, that was the only thing that they were supposed to be doing, or said the primary thing. But moreover, their entire inheritance, they didn't get the land everybody else got. They didn't get, they didn't get, the, they didn't get all the goods that everybody else got. What did they get? They got God. Now, to the person in the room that has a particular spiritual affinity, when I just said that, something left within you. Because you're like, man, to have the Lord, who would want any more? Who could ask for more? But maybe for somebody who'd grown up in it his whole life, maybe that wasn't enough for him. A.W. Tozer said it this way about the Levites. He said, when the Lord divided Canaan amongst the tribes of Israel, Levi received no share of the land. God said to him simply, I am thy part and thine inheritance. And by those words made him richer than all his brethren, richer than all the kings and rajas who ever lived in the world. And there is a spiritual principle here, a principle still valid for every priest of the most high God. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things, he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, and all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For now he has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. Going back, to Abed, going back to Obed-Edom, imagine for a moment you're a priest with no God to care for and then God gets dropped off on your doorstep. Like I can kind of, like Pastor Peter, I can imagine this moment, right, where Obed-Edom goes to his door, hears a knock, tap, 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 opens the door and hears David with a cart and a golden box. And David's like, hey, man, I'm gonna need you to hold on to this for, let's just say a while. Sorry, by the way, it just killed somebody, but could you take it? Can you imagine for a moment that all your life you've been running from something that you were born to do and then it gets dropped off on your door? Interestingly, he wasn't the first priest whom God had showed up to his door. Abinadab was also a Levite and he had the ark for 20 years, but it's really interesting that no one recorded that God blessed him for it. No one ever recorded that people were beating down Abinadab's door to get the blessing of the ark. I wonder why that was. Like, what was the difference between a guy who had the same ark, the same presence, the same God in his household, and he had the same priestly duty, but for whatever reason, in 20 years, no king, no judge, no leader had ever showed up to his house and said, hey, can we get that back? In fact, 
See, even though Obadiah's story continues, Uzzah, the son of Abinadab's story, ends early because he was so familiar with the presence of God that he didn't revere, respect, or fear the Lord anymore. Now, speculation is not always the best preaching device, but when something is inferred in Scripture through judgment or blessing, it's generally pretty safe to use it. Perhaps Abinadab had taught his sons to tolerate the presence of God. That's why in 20 years, no one else was clamoring to house the ark. Because who wants to really bless somebody who just tolerates you? Now, many of you, you know, we all just came out of the Christmas season, right? And, and, and for those of us that, that are able, you know, we, we kind of have these extended, you know, like, like gift lists, right? And, and sometimes those go outside of our family. But I tell you the friends that I'm not always all that stoked to get extra presents for is people that I know just tolerate me. Like, I didn't think to myself when I was putting my Christmas list together, man, you know, that guy Jake, I should really get Jake a present because he tolerates me really well. Like, he just loves to tolerate me. No, for the most part, who do you give presents to, aside from family, even if your family's the one that's tolerating you, right? But like, those people outside of your family, like, the ones that you're, for lack of a better term, not obligated to give gifts to, who do you give them to? It's people that you love and love you back. It's people that have earned your trust. It's people, I mean, in a lot of ways, we give gifts because we've been given gifts. It wasn't until his presence was revered that God poured out such a blessing that even King David was jealous for the Lord. King David was jealous for the Lord. You know, we're going to go on and talk about what the blessing of Obed-Edom was in the long term, but in the short term, I can't really tell you what it was. Because the long-term blessing of Obed-Edom was a family that followed the Lord. That was the blessing. But his short-term blessing, the Bible says that he was only in, the presence of God was only in his house for three months. And David heard about the blessing so much so that the guy that had everything realized he had nothing that he had nothing. He had lands, titles, crowns, gold, wives, nothing. I can't even imagine, you know, having experienced the presence of God, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, friend, I cannot imagine a life without it. What's interesting is, is that David's, David's first encounter with the presence of God, like I think sometimes we, we put David up on a pedestal because he's, you know, God's man, he's, you know, man after God's heart and all this kind of stuff. What's interesting is, you know, the first time that David actually came face to face with the presence was when Uzzah got killed. His actual first time in the presence of God was when he treated the presence so irreverently that it cost someone else their life. He was so afraid of the presence of God. Hear me, I need you to hear this. He sent it back to God's enemies. He sent it back to Gath. 
He didn't send it on to some Israelite city somewhere. He didn't, you know, he didn't even send it to Bethel. He sent it back to Gath because he was so afraid of the presence of God that even David, the man after God's own heart that God had raised up to be king, sent it back to his enemies and said, I don't know what to do with this. And this same David, three months later, that was so afraid of the presence of God that he sent it to his enemies, heard of the blessing of Obed-Edom's house. And it made him so jealous for the Lord that he learned the fear of the Lord. Like he learned it. Friend, I got to tell you that the fear of the Lord can be learned. It can be learned. Because the blessing of the presence of God is so great that it should overcome your fear. Listen, I'm thankful that we don't have the same covenantal things that the, that the Old Testament does. I don't have to have the same fear that if I do something wrong or I don't say exactly the right words that you know, it might end my life. But I'm telling you that David was so impacted by what he heard coming out of Obed-Edom's home that he finally said, you know what? The risk is worth the reward. The risk is worth the reward. And that's because when the glory falls, you don't need to advertise. You know, we had a service a couple of months ago in our church that was so powerful. We, our first service, we preached and then we just went into an extended worship time and it just kind of kept going and going and going. And, and, and we had so many people encounter the presence of God that in the second service, we didn't preach at all and we just kind of kept worshiping. And the Holy Spirit came into the room and the glory of God fell in such a way that I had friends of mine just a day later that were texting me and calling me, asking me, man, what exactly happened in your church on Sunday? And when I say friends of mine, I don't mean friends of mine in my town. I mean friends of mine hours and hours and hours separated from me because all they heard was that God fell at house of the Lord and they wanted to know what happened. I didn't put it on Facebook. I didn't throw it up on Instagram. I didn't have a video of a glory cloud. All we had was the glory fell and people heard about it. Let me tell you what people aren't looking for. They're not looking for more shows. We're not looking for more shows. If I want a show, I can go to the Spokane Arena and spend 50 bucks on a ticket, then I can find a good show. What I'm looking for is I'm looking for a place where the glory of God is revered. I'm looking for a house where the presence of God is honored and accepted and invited and ministered to. Friend, I'm telling you, when the glory of God falls in this house, you won't have to advertise. Because people are looking for the glory. It's what we were born for. As I said, in fact, in a real way, Obed-Edom taught David to fear the Lord. See, the same David who packed the ark into a cart three months previously, returned with an entire Levitical entourage. Not only that, but the Bible records this in 2 Samuel 6, verses 13 to 15. It says, oh no, I lost my place. There it is. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and, fat, and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all of his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod, and he and the whole house of Israel 
We're bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of a trumpet. The distance, this is okay. I did a little bit of research because I wanted to know exactly what we were getting into here. The distance between the house of Obed-Edom and Jerusalem was about 12, somewhere between 12 and 15 kilometers or around, let's just say, 30,000 steps. If indeed David sacrificed an ox and a calf every seventh step, he offered the Lord around 10,000 burnt offerings over that span. He went from a guy who put, the, put the, the, the presence of God into an ox cart to a guy who in three months decided, let's do the exact opposite of that. Let's bring the Levites and let's go so far as to say that every six steps, which is the number of man, that I can't go farther in my own power. And so I'm giving the Lord an offering so that I can continue to go. I cannot carry the presence in my own authority. I cannot carry it in my own power. And so every seventh step, I'm going to sacrifice two animals. 10,000 burnt offerings between Obed-Edom's house in Jerusalem. Can you imagine? Like sometimes we think like the trash on the side of our roads is bad. Be honest with you guys. If I was Obed-Edom, and David showed up at my door looking for the ark. I'd be like, dude, kick rocks. You left it here. <laughs> like, let me experience my blessing, man. Let me have it. But here's what I love about Obed-Edom. In three months, being in the presence of God and ministering to the spirit of the Lord, the man who had been a Gittite rediscovered his joy of being a Levite. See, whatever his reasons had been for leaving his promise, First Chronicles 26 records that he ended his life as a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. I'm going to go back to 1 Chronicles 26, 4-5. It says this, And Obed-Edom also had sons, Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehozabad the second, uh, Shemaiah, or excuse me, uh, Joah the third, Sakar the fourth, Nethanel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, Pulathai the eighth. For God blessed him. See, more than anything, what Scripture communicated about Obed is that, man, is that a man or a people who will revere the presence of God will reap the reward of their posture towards him. So understand that the Bible doesn't say that Obed-Edom moved from Gath, but clearly he did. See, those three months that he spent ministering to the presence changed the entire trajectory of his life. Because maybe he was a person that wanted land with his name on it. We've all been there. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever moved because there was a piece of land that you could buy? How many of us have ever moved because there was a new job? How many of us have ever moved because of whatever reason we moved for? See, we understand Obed-Edom pretty, pretty well. We know what it's like to move because of earthly things. What I love about Obed-Edom is that when he found the presence of God, he would not be parted from it. So much so that whatever he thought that he had in Gath, whatever good thing that he thought that he had going on there, he realized, I cannot be parted from what I have found, or rather, what has found me. Have you ever been so gripped by the presence of God that you would do anything and go anywhere? I promise I'm wrapping up right here, Pastor Pete. First Chronicles, we see that the musicians and the gatekeepers are partners in ministering to the presence of God. What's interesting is, is that Psalm 84 is attributed to the sons of Korah. 
among whom Obed-Edom is actually mentioned in 1 Chronicles 26. If you want to read the entire chapter, it actually says what delineation of these gatekeepers he was from. Now, how many of you have ever read the Bible so much that sometimes it loses the emotion of Scripture? Like, I think, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with reading a lot of the Bible, by the way, but sometimes we can read it so much that it loses its meaning because we forget who wrote it, we forget why they wrote it, and we forget who it was written to. Psalm 84 is one of our, is one of our probably most beloved Psalms, right? Because we're like, yeah, better is one day, better is one day. Like, I grew up singing better is one day, and I was like, yeah, better is one day. Ha! But Psalm 84 was written by the sons of Korah. Listen, I can't, knowing that Obed-Edom was named as a gatekeeper amongst the sons of Korah, I can't help but think that maybe he had a part in writing this psalm. Listen to this. I want you to hear it as though you're Obed-Edom, as though he's the one writing this. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. <laughs> Listen to this. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. You ever wondered how the people that wrote the Psalms got the Psalms? Like what an interesting comparison to somebody who's never dwelt in the, the tents of the wicked. Like it's really easy to say, well, yeah, I'd rather be a doorkeeper than dwell in the tents of the wicked. If you've never dwelt in the tents of the wicked, how would you know? What if it was written by somebody who did? What if Obed-Edom realized lands, titles, inheritance, nothing. I have nothing. You imagine the scene when David takes the presence away from Obed-Edom. I can imagine, I'll be honest, like as a, as a person who loves the presence of God, I can imagine going out to my door and just watching it go thinking, if I don't go with it, I'll never have it again. If I don't go, it won't stay. Can I tell you what the doorkeepers did? Can somebody, is there somebody in the back real quick? Can you open that door for me? Just right there, right there. They opened the door. Thank you. They opened the door. This was not a highly exalted position. He wasn't becoming the high priest. He wasn't even really, I mean, he was just becoming a guy who opens the door and makes sure that nobody that's not supposed to be there crosses the threshold. He was a glorified security guard. He went from being a landowner to a security guard. But his confession of faith is, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. It's better to be in proximity to your presence than it is to be anywhere else. So what was the blessing that Obed-Edom received? This is, can I have the, is it the worship team coming up at this point? Yeah, bring them on up. So what was it that Obed-Edom received? It was the richness of his family line. It wasn't silver or gold, or David would never have desired it. 
The Bible actually records that Obed-Edom had 62 direct descendants, all who were virtuous, valiant, followed the Lord, and were able to do the work. Listen, isn't that the goal? Like which one of us that has everything but our kids aren't following the Lord really cares? Man, and, and, and for the people, I want you to hear this. For anyone in the room whose, whose child has chosen not yet to follow the Lord, I don't want you to hear any condemnation. But what I want you to understand is that I imagine that David, given the fact that his family was so dysfunctional, would have given anything to have the blessing that Obed-Edom received. I mean, you think about all the stories of what happened after David's life and, 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 and all of his sons and all the things that they did. I imagine David wistfully looking at the sons of Obed-Edom, wishing to himself, I wish I had that three months back. I wish I had that time back. Now, the beauty for you and I is that we don't have to limit God to a three-month span because there's a physical limitation. The beauty is, is that you and I have every single day in which to build an altar to the Lord. So how does one build an altar in the home? I'm just gonna say this one thing, and then we're gonna get into it. Communion. We're gonna start there. Communion. The name Obed-Edom actually means servant of the blood. In short, Obed-Edom was very likely to have administered blood sacrifices to the ark of the Lord whilst it was in his house. And keep in mind that the ark is a type and shadow of Jesus himself. The primary purpose of the ark was not only to be the literal resting place of God on the earth, but also that it housed the symbols of the promises of God, namely the stones upon which God wrote the Ten Commandments, the budded staff of Aaron that legitimized his priesthood, and a jar of manna that reminded the Israelites how God sustained them in the wilderness. And likewise, Jesus is the physically manifested glory of God and the carrier of all God's fulfilled promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. See, communion is more than a rite or a routine. It is us joining with 2,000 years of faithful believers, witnesses, and martyrs. It's a holy act that connects us to heaven here and now and a reminder that there is still power in the blood for the healing of our diseases, the breaking down of strongholds, the freedom of captives, and the remission of sins. And it's a place where we minister to the Lord and we celebrate his victory, proclaiming his death and resurrection until he comes again. Here's my close. Friend, I want to encourage you to revere and honor the presence of God this year. Can I tell you what I don't have for you today? I don't have, you, I don't have for you like a word for the year. I think sometimes there's like a pressure on prophetic voices to like, oh man, we need a word for the year. But sometimes I gotta be honest with you, I wonder how valuable yearly prophetic prognostication can sometimes be. What if I told you that the word for the church for this year and next year and the year after is faithfulness? What if I told you that? What if what God is looking for is a people that will cherish him above all things? What if what God is looking for is a people that will cherish his presence above his promise? What if what God is looking for is a people who come together 
Not just because there might be a great word this morning. Maybe there's a, you know, maybe there's a great, you know, the prayer teams are going to be awesome or communion is going to be great. What if God, what God's looking for is a people who will cherish him above all other things? That when we say, why are we here? Our answer is emphatically and clearly because Jesus is in the house. Because when we come together, he is enthroned upon the praises of his people. We're going to take some time and just enter into communion. Pastor Pete, did you want to? You good? Okay. I just want to take some time this morning, and then here's how we're going to do this. This is not like a, um, you know, heal the sick, like cleanse lepers, you know, cast out demons kind of altar call. I love those, by the way. But... What I I really want to encourage us to do this morning is, can we just abide in the presence of the Lord? Can we honor the fact that the king is in the room right now? Friend, the beauty is we don't have a three-month span. We have today and tomorrow and the next day and all of eternity. But it starts right now. I want to encourage you as we take communion, as we get back into worship, can we practice revering the presence of the Lord today? Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you're so worthy. I thank you, you're so worthy. I just want to read this passage of scripture and then we're going to take communion, I promise. This isn't even a communion passage, but I just, I felt really strongly this morning that I was, I was supposed to read it. This is out of Revelation chapter five, starting in verse eight. And it says, when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and you purchased people by, for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also the living creatures and the elders. And the number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped.